Why don't you just leave? One of the most judgmental and insensitive things a survivor of abuse will hear from other people. Yet, a common question survivors get, let me tell you why some people don't just leave or why it takes them a long time to leave. For some survivors, it is financial, religious, cultural reasons. Other survivors have children that would be impacted by that decision. There are so many reasons and they all boil down to post-separation abuse. Leaving does not necessarily mean it ends. Sometimes when the survivor leaves, the post-separation abuse can escalate to dangerous levels. This is not to scare anyone into staying. I want to acknowledge how complicated it is. As someone who has left and received some cruel things thrown my way for leaving, I can say it is not easy. When you leave an abusive relationship, it is anything but clean, civil, and reasonable. Though I have left some toxic relationships, I have stayed in others. Again, it is very complicated. Today, in our monthly illustration series, I will dive into the movie The Invisible Man to talk about post-separation abuse, domestic violence, gaslighting, and how systems are not built to fully protect victims and survivors of abuse. Hi, I am Raisa, a survivor of narcissistic abuse, and I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and you are listening to Hello Trauma Brain, a podcast where I share my experiences living with complex PTSD. My hope is this podcast can help destigmatize mental health and provide support to anyone diagnosed with CPTSD who thinks they might have it or has a loved one with this diagnosis. Quick reminder, I am not a licensed psychologist or mental health care professional. And this podcast is not meant to replace nor substitute the care of psychologists, other mental or medical health care professionals. If you think you might have complex PTSD or PTSD, please reach out to your primary care or mental health care provider. Any individuals and resources mentioned in this episode are not sponsoring Hello Trauma Brain. This episode may reference trauma, abuse, domestic violence, and suicide, and listener discretion is advised. Remember, you can always pause or skip this episode at any time. And now, let's get back to the episode. Hello, dear survivors, and welcome to this episode of Hello, Trauma Brain. Thank you for joining me. It is Halloween season and given I am in full force mode watching horror content, I decided to select a film that falls in the psychological horror genre, I would say. I will share that I am a huge fan of Mike Flanagan and I am very ready for the fall of The House of Usher, which premieres the same day as this episode. Quick check-in, I am feeling better. 
I'm starting to uh, feel more of my humanness coming back to me. And I am starting to experience joy again, which is a wonderful feeling. I am connecting with people more these days. And it feels good. It feels good to still feel like I am a part of, of a community, like I am still part of people's lives. And it feels very healing. Today, I will do our monthly illustration where I use art to portray what narcissistic abuse and healing from toxic relationships can look like in the jungle I call the real world. I picked another film this month and it links up to last month's movie illustration, Gaslight. This month, I want to talk about The Invisible Man and I will use the 2020 movie adaptation featuring Elizabeth Moss. I will link the website Just Watch in the show notes where they list different ways you can stream the film The Invisible Man. Warning, there will be spoilers during this episode, so if you have not seen the movie yet and mind the spoilers, you might want to shelf this episode until you have seen it. If you don't mind the spoilers, then you are welcome to stick around. I also want to point out how graphic this film can be and caution you about seeing it. Um, it does, uh, the physical abuse in it is it's pretty intense, at least it was for me. I will offer this. You can always listen to this episode without having watched the movie. A brief synopsis of the film The Invisible Man is that it follows the story of Cecilia, who was romantically involved with an abusive man who stages his own suicide after she leaves him. And he uses his power and a scientific invention to become invisible to stalk and terrorize Cecilia, his ex-girlfriend. When the police refuse to believe her story, Cecilia decides to take matters into her own hands and fight back. The main characters in this movie are uh, Cecilia, uh, also called C by her loved ones in the film, Adrian, who I will call the psychopathic ex, James, who is the friend who, who takes her in, who, uh, who basically gives shelter to Cecilia after she leaves. And we also have the sister and other characters in the movie as well, but um, I will probably be focusing the discussion on these characters in particular. Two videos that I used to prepare for this discussion include uh, Dr. Romani's uh, movie review on this film, where she actually says it is the equivalent of Gaslight, which happens to be our first film from the movie illustration series. And I invite you to listen to episode four, Gaslight, to hear more about that film. Another video that does a great review on this film from a therapist perspective is from the Cinema Therapy YouTube channel. In that video, licensed therapist Jonathan Decker talks about sociopathic narcissism as portrayed in The Invisible Man. I want to start by pointing out how this film captures what psychologically abusive relationships can do to someone. This is a horror film, and there are no ghosts or fictional entities at play. Um, sure, The Invisible Suit is, is, is a fictional invention, I guess. But when it comes to what makes this movie terrifying, it really boils down to the reality of being in an abusive relationship and how horrifying it is to go through post-separation abuse. In the movie, C calls her ex, Adrian, a narcissistic sociopath. And it's, it's really important when we, when we hear the word narcissistic um, being used in mo modern culture. Um, something I've heard in the 
psychology field is it's like the n-word is making it and by n-word i mean narcissism because it's a very wildly misunderstood uh, concept still and i feel like a lot of people have this this perception that it is someone who just loves staring at themselves in the mirror and there's a lot more to a narcissist back to this movie i'm gonna push on the sociopath ah. To me, Adrian is more of a psychopath. Now, again, I'm not a professional. I'm not licensed. So I'm completely speculating here. And um, I will also point out that a licensed therapist, uh, Jonathan Decker, in his video, he does call him a psychopath. If I had to pick which type of narcissist Adrian would be, I would say malignant. And that solely based on the fact that when Ramani describes the, what is the many stops in a narcissistic train, malignant is the last stop before you get into the realm of psychopathy or sociopathy. Now, some narcissistic traits that Adrian exhibits in the movie uh, is the paranoia. Narcissistic people tend to be very paranoid, and you see that right off the bat at the beginning with the level of security he has in his home. Like the level of security he has going on is like, again, it's, it's, it's like movie style. Like this is the stuff that they have at like buildings where they have like very valuable items and they have a whole room just devoted to all the camera controls. Now, another thing that the movie captures right from the start is how elaborate Cecilia's plan had to be in order to be able to leave. How she had to time the cameras, have everything down to a T and not even disclose to anyone what was happening until after. It's uh, it's really hard to describe when you're in an abusive relationship and I feel like as a survivor I can say you know it's almost like nobody's gonna believe me. You, you feel that especially at the beginning and in her case the stakes of anyone even approaching Adrian and giving away her plan were too high. So I completely understand why she didn't disclose anything until the very last minute. And I said even the last minute, I want to say like after the last minute, right? It was like the sister didn't know what she was getting into until she sees Adrian break the window of her car as she's trying to drive Cecilia away. Other dynamics of post-separation abuse that this movie captures very accurately uh, include the agoraphobia, that fear of leaving the home, the that phobia of being in public spaces it's uh there's a level of being afraid of running into the abuser and i i can definitely say i've i've had that and even to this day you know it, it has been years and when i drive close to that area it's, it, it's still i can still feel it i can do it i can go and i can still manage to live my life but not gonna lie uh psychologically it's um I still think about it. I'm still aware of, oh my goodness, I'm driving back there again. I hope I don't run into them. And I I can recall times where I thought I saw them and it wasn't them, but oh, my heart jumped. It really, really did. And we see that portrayal of agoraphobia in the movie and the scene where Cecilia goes to grab the mail and the mail is literally steps away from the door. But that step of getting to the mailbox was a huge, huge accomplishment for her. And how terrifying it was when she sees the jogger and Cecilia has that trigger and she just runs back to the house in a panic, which 
quite frankly, after what she's been through, perfectly normal reaction to have, by the way. And I think this is something that, you know, in this movie, it's quote unquote fictional, but quite frankly, a, a real survivor of abuse who's been through that type of abuse, uh, that's something they they might experience. And I wouldn't consider it an overreaction on their part. I would consider that a very normal reaction to uh, having been through a traumatic experience like that. Another thing that we see um, as Cecilia navigates, again, uh, the aftermath of leaving this relationship is how she's waiting for the next horrible thing to happen. There's a helplessness. And I feel like for survivors, when we've been in these relationships for long enough, that sense of paranoia is contagious and it kind of gets ingrained in our brains. And we are waiting for that person to do something. We're waiting for the next step in the escalation. And often, quite frankly, because these people have shown us over and over again what they've done in previous relationships or in other situations. And I don't consider it an unreasonable fear. I do think that um, we do need to be careful because often it can paralyze us and prevent us from from living our lives. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do want to take a moment to say, you know, sometimes the, the fears are very well warranted in, in some of these situations. And it is really important to work with a professional or, or get resources to work on healing those aspects. Because... Um, Often I'm, I'm really operating from a worst case scenario and it's not, it's not healthy. I, I, I've had to work with that. And I've, I have to say as time goes by, sometimes the worst case scenarios don't even happen. And a part of me is glad that I have been working at coping with those fears in a way where I'm still able to quote unquote take risks. Because in my case, I feel like the paranoia is almost like that symptom of it's still, it's still there. I still need to recover from, from that. And I think part of working on that is what can lead to begin taking your life back. One thing that I found in my research that was pointed out was how this feels like a horror movie uh, during and after the relationship. The horror still is, is there from the beginning of the movie when she's still technically in it, she's leaving and how the horror continues after. Something that happens to survivors that have PTSD or complex PTSD is our worldview is distorted. The world does not feel safe. Relationships are not safe. Uh, the relationships not being safe is more for the complex PTSD since that tends to be more relational trauma. And you see that in Cecilia, you know, her world is reduced to just being inside of a home and going to the mailbox is a big deal for her. And even when she goes, you know, there's still still a jogger that triggered a trauma response for her and working, working on applying for a job and doing these things that maybe some other people might consider just quote unquote easy or just part of life. You know, they can become very difficult to do for a survivor recovering. Now, I, I referenced this earlier, this movie is, um, some people consider it kind of like a modern version of the movie Gaslight. And there is a scene that kind of attributes the Gaslight, um, the Gaslight movie, and it's when the burner on the stove gets turned on and it starts a fire. I will say that the burner was not the only trope to, to gaslighting. There, you, we see many examples of gaslighting in this movie. And it's, it's little things, you know, it goes back to a breakdown of the person. It is a gradual process where 
the victim is experiencing a destruction of their sense of self, their sense of trusting their perception, and at the end it leads to concluding that there must be something wrong with them. And we see this with the portfolio. Uh, she goes to apply for a job and the portfolio goes missing. And, you know, it's, it's again meant to make her look like this person is clearly unstable. And that ends up sabotaging her job interview. Now, the portfolio is not the only instance of gaslighting. The fact that you have someone in an invisible suit literally physically abusing this person, and when they try to tell anyone, they're like, what are you talking about? Nobody's there. That's that's like gaslighting to the next level, to the umph degree. In this movie, it's it's a bit of an exaggeration with this invisible suit, but it, that invisible suit really captures that metaphor of how survivors will not be believed in their perception of reality like as as an audience member we are seeing the physical abuse we're experiencing that part with her and and we know it's real we we're literally watching it but then the people around her do not and it's it's painful it's really painful to see another aspect of post-separation abuse includes financial abuse and I would say the recent financial abuse can be a common tactic is because unfortunately in our society money money is power and power leads to control and these abusers they love control and money is it's a is sadly one way they go about getting it now in Cecilia's case this financial abuse shows up in the form of this will there's this money that's been given to her in the will but it is conditional and we see how she begins using this money in a generous way. She, she doesn't really start buying herself expensive cars and, and homes. She actually starts giving it to the people that have been helping her. And later on, the circumstances that are, are built in into this well that can lead to the money being taken away, you know, those circumstances start presenting themselves. Like Adrian manipulates the the narrative in a way where the money ends up being another way to abuse her, to control her, to chip away at her sanity and her safety. Again, it goes back to these relationships getting inside your head. And one thing that um, Cecilia describes when she's opening up to to her loved ones and, and explaining to them what it was like to be in that relationship. There is a scene where she basically talks about how how he was controlling the way she looked. And it got to the point where it felt like he was even controlling her thoughts. Oh, that... Mm-hmm. That really hit hard. And I'll, I'll tell you how it feels like, at least from my perspective. You almost start noticing the patterns of things that might set them off or things that you might say that might set them off. And granted, you know, it, there is no controlling these people and there's nothing you can do to avoid the aftermath. There's always one more thing that gets added to the list. You almost need to become very good at reading these people and almost like trying to predict as best as you can how they think to try to keep yourself safe. Again, I'm not saying this is a successful tactic. I think this is just something that can happen in the mind of the survivor, especially when we get to a point of being so helpless and not knowing what to do. And we almost start abandoning our own identity, our own sense, and just focusing on them. And how can we, how can we figure this person out so we can keep ourselves safe, which at the end of the day, it doesn't work. 
because that's that's not how this works but I can I can definitely relate to that that concept of almost feeling like they're controlling what you think and yeah it, 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 can, it can go really far it can go so far to the point where you might look at your closet and you might want to wear a shirt but you know that they're not going to like it so just <laughs> don't wear it and it, it it also distorts the way you think about yourself especially when the gaslighting has been going on for a while you really start thinking that there is something wrong with you and it, your perception of, of your reality just becomes extremely distorted now, one thing in this movie that is just as painful as, as it was in the Gaslight movie is seeing all these people that are not believing Cecilia. And in this particular movie in The Invisible Man, this is an exaggerated version. But here's the thing. In real life, people treat it the same, though. There's that gaslighting by tribe, that feeling where everyone is just pushing a narrative of, what are you talking about? That can't, there's no way that can be happening. You must be losing your mind. And it brings a rumination in the survivors. Like, how did I let this happen? Why Why am I so confused? Why did I not leave sooner? Like, you start incorporating the things that you're hearing. That's why that question at the beginning of the episode, that why didn't you just leave? It's so dangerous because you might not be intending to hurt this person, but you might be planting a seed that's going to become a vine of shame for them. Now, other things that Adrian does in this movie, um, besides making portfolio uh, portfolios disappear, is he actually drugs her, and he severely physically abuses Cecilia, which is, in my opinion, one of the hard, harder scenes to watch. Um, it, pretty much any of the physical stuff is just is really is really hard to watch. But the the scene where she's getting dragged around and slammed against walls by this invisible entity that was extremely unsettling for me to see another thing that adrian does and and this is this is the point this is why i say psychopathic because it really goes far you know we we're seeing this man killing the people that do start believing her and here i i want to take this this killing and kind of make it a metaphor because this I, I feel like this is a thing that happens for survivors you know metaphorically speaking these people will, they will kind of assassinate the character of the victims and they will find a way to remove anyone who starts seeing it and anyone who starts believing it. So it further isolates the person because having someone believing the victim is it's just, it's, it's going to break the spell. It's not going to make it easier for the abuser to keep manipulating. And the murders that happen in this movie is just is, is brutal it's really brutal and it's and this is all done from the goal of continuing the torment now we see towards the end of the film the the hoover moment and um, i do go over the cycles of a narcissistic abusive relationship in the episode gaslight but to recap briefly hoover is that last stage of narcissistic abuse where you get sucked back in and quite frankly i hoover kind of gets mixed in with love bombing because the love bombing will be uh brought into in order to suck you back in and love bombing tends to be the first stage and we see this in the movie and the dinner scene 
It's very over the top. When an abuser doesn't know the person, uh, it, it shows. And in that scene, there are all these contradictions because Adrian goes, well, I don't know what you wanted to eat, so I can't, I got everything. I got a little bit of everything. Or maybe you, you don't want to eat anything. And it's it kind of contradicts itself because later on he says that he knows her better than anyone else in the world, which that scene, it, it gives me chills when he says that to her and ugh, just creepy creepy but does he actually know her because wouldn't you know what she would have loved to eat right like again it contradicts itself going back again to that love bombing like love bombing is over the top like having a dinner table set up like a banquet for 20 people when it is just for two now in this movie you know she she is pregnant and um i i i even found ironic this like getting like there were I think he said sushi I don't know if it was cooked sushi was like she probably shouldn't be eating that if she's pregnant but again it's like that that even that little aspect highlights how much he really doesn't care about her health he doesn't he's not even thinking about this um the pregnancy and how that could impact the pregnancy is there's no care for her whatsoever and then he goes into this fake empathy in the cinema therapy video Alan and Jonathan call it fake contrition and is that is that fake empathy like he actually doesn't care and he's saying all the things she wanted to hear how he knows that you know you shouldn't have been treated that way and is all these fake apologies because a, a real apology is not just saying I'm sorry it's not just saying oh I shouldn't have treated you that way it has to follow with actual action to not do that again. <laughs> if you're going to apologize for treating someone poorly and five minutes later you're treating them poorly again, did you really apologize? Was that a real apology? That doesn't count. Something else about narcissistic people is how the rules don't tend to apply to them. So they get to hurt other people. They get to break the rules. But Goodness forbid that you are the one breaking the rules, or I should say breaking their rules. That's really when hell hell breaks loose in these relationships. They tend to have a narrow set of scales that are exceptional. I mean, some narcissistic people can be very good at what they do, and their accomplishments in that area can be very, very real. Now, what makes it so hard to be in a relationship with a narcissist is how they see other people. Other people are there to boost their ego, to serve their needs. They're a means to an end. In a narcissistic relationship, you don't go to get reciprocity and, and civility and respect. You really go to serve them. And if you don't serve them, get ready for it. And even when you're serving them, get ready for it. There is a lack of empathy with narcissism. So, and this is something that confuses a lot of survivors, me included, by the way. They will experience shame and they might even show some remorse. But the thing is that they don't have the capacity to self-reflect and realize what they're really doing and how to change it. Because you can't change something you don't think is wrong. You know, if, if you think that, um, like, like if you are going to acknowledge you did something, but then you go ahead and blame the survivor or the victim for it, you're not really taking that internal look at yourself which means that it's going to keep happening again. And now this is the reason I think Adrian goes into the psychopathy realm. There is no empathy there. Oh my gosh, this person's like killing people literally in the movie. And it's just like, you can just sit down and have steaks after like nothing happened and get a smile on his face and just act like 
heck he even tells her like oh it wasn't me like it was i was kidnapped somebody else had stole the suit like are you <laughs> are you kidding me this man actually can lie like that and cool as a cucumber wow that's no that's no empathy there's that, that's not a lack of empathy that's like you are you're past the malignant narcissism and i think I personally think it's like way, way out there with the psychopathy, <laughs> with narcissism. Something I do want to point out is how this is on a spectrum. So I'm not saying, you know, all narcissists are psychopaths. Like, is, is, um, I think the way Ramani says it is like all psychopaths are narcissists. Like they kind of have to go through all those stuff to get there, but not all narcissists are psychopaths. So it, it really falls into a spectrum. Not every narcissist is is an Adrian. Now, Adrian is like... Ooh, evil, really dangerous, very much out there. And I have to say, it's a very scary, very scary villain in a horror film. And what makes him scary is not the invisible suit. What makes him scary is how abusive, how he has no empathy, and how far is he willing to go to terrorize someone for not wanting to act the way he wants I was that was her sin. That was that was what got her in the situation that she he couldn't control her anymore. So she was gonna be punished for it. It's not like she was trying to sue him and get him to pay all this money for all the abuse, or she was trying to hurt him. Like she was happy not seeing this man ever again. She had left. She was done with him. She wasn't trying to get revenge. She wasn't trying to get back to him. She wasn't trying to get an apology or for him to acknowledge all the horrible things she did. She really just walked away to live her life. That's what she did that he couldn't bear. Now, in the movie at the end, she ends up killing him. And I, I do want to point out, I'm not condoning murder in, in, in any, <laughs> any way here, but... Something I do want to point out is how in real life, it rarely goes like that. I, growing up in, in Puerto Rico, I, especially as a kid, like when I was living there, you would hear stories. And I mean, endless amounts of stories. And you still hear them to this day of survivors that are murdered by their abusers. And Puerto Rico is not the only place where that happens. It is really tragic how much of a problem this still is. And Sadly, it, it goes into into the systems not being designed to fully protect the victims. It's like even even when you report someone, it doesn't mean that something's gonna happen. There are statute of limitations that might take your right away to be able to do something. And quite frankly, I've it's a whole conversation about how I don't I don't think there should be a statute of limitations on something like this. But it's again, there there are these technicalities that abusers unfortunately have at their disposal to take advantage of that can silence a victim and can continue perpetrating these cycles of abuse. Something that also bothers me is every time I hear of a survivor that spoke up and they took legal action, and that includes going into a courtroom to talk about what happened with the abuser right there in the room looking at them. Uh, how re-traumatizing that must be. I I don't know what that feels like. And it, it, it makes me shake to even think about going through something like that. And it's even scarier to think that there are people who know what this feels like. 
is horrific. And I, I think if, if, if anyone listening to this has any power to uh, address or, or begin changes of, of these issues, goodness gracious, can we please not make that <laughs> a thing? Can we, can we make the day when the survivor testifies the day when the abuser is not there? Please, somebody do, somebody make this happen. As I wrap up this discussion, uh, I want to point out the metaphor of the invisible suit, which is the hurting can continue after. It goes back to the post-separation abuse. Packing the bag and going to the door and actually getting in the car and leaving. You know, walking away doesn't necessarily mean it's fixed and it's over. The memories, the fear that gets programmed into the survivor, the smear campaign, the character assassination, the harassing, it's real and it's painful and it makes it very hard to stay away. It makes it very hard to make the decision to leave. Now, a few cinematic things to point out about the film. Um, I like one that Jonathan um, Decker pointed out in Cinema Therapy, which um, is the bookends. Now, he's not invisible at the beginning, and he's not invisible at the end, which goes back to why this movie is so horrifying. Because when you are in an abusive relationship, your life becomes a horror movie. Other little interesting things about the movie, cinematically speaking, is how it uses the point of view of the invisible man. Or sometimes the camera will pan into an empty corner telling you where the invisible man is. And it is such a clever horror strategy. It is very scary to know where he is and not actually see him. Now, one last fun fact about this movie is that the composer was Benjamin Wolfish, who's also the composer for the It films. And he does an excellent job scoring this this film. It really, it really makes it terrifying. <laughs> One fun experiment you can do is if you're watching a horror film, mute it. And you'll notice that the scary scenes won't have the same impact as when the score is is playing. Now I want to provide a few things for anyone who is listening that is healing from post-separation abuse. You will need help and it is okay to ask for help. You don't have to go through this alone. Safety is extremely important and I will link some domestic violence resources in the show notes. If you are able to get a therapist, I would recommend you get a trauma-informed therapist. If that's not available to you, looking for a support group for domestic abuse or any, any type of abuse that is relevant to your situation. Support groups tend to be uh, low-cost or free resources, depending on the group that you choose. And the goal is to start engaging with people who get it, who do not enable the abuser, nor judge you. Take your time. Baby steps are good enough when it comes to post-separation abuse healing or any healing. A little goes a long way to help you recover, especially at the beginning when you're trying to fight that rumination. Document everything. You might want to create a special folder in your email where you can drag these emails to or messages so you don't have to look at them every time. Uh, perhaps set a filter so they go straight there and keep that evidence because you don't know when you will need it. 
unfortunately, in the legal systems, at least in the United States, you know, having that written evidence is powerful. Same goes for any recorded messages they send you or anything that can show the abuse. And even if you don't end up taking any legal action or, or no legal action ever happens, sometimes having that evidence that you can look back to and you can reread that message and, and be reminded of, oh, yeah, no, they, they crossed that line can be very, very important, especially as time goes by, because you might start doubting your decision or questioning if maybe um, you were overreacting or things like that. So again, document everything and keep it somewhere safe. If you've left the relationship, and it's a, especially if it's a romantic relationship, I do want to point out Dr. Ramani's recommendation of having the 12-month detox. And the reason is you want to see what your life looks like when you are not devalued, shamed, criticized, manipulated, abused. You want to be able to go through all the holidays, all the birthdays, all the days without someone controlling what's going on on that day. And it's, it's a really, really important period of time where you get to start discovering what you like, who you are, and you start coming to terms with what really happened to you. It's, it's important to allow yourself also to have that grieving period. And sometimes it lasts more than 12 months. Quite frankly, my, my detox has been longer than 12 months. Quite frankly, I'm trying not to judge how long it's taking me because if I wasn't taking this time, the likelihood that I would be in another abusive relationship would be pretty high. And after all that I've been through, it's, I, I didn't get here in one month and it's not going to take a month to get out of here if that makes any sense. You deserve to be treated with respect, civility. You deserve to be able to walk away without being more abused. You deserve to have support, to have people see you, hear you, and believe you. You deserve to be free. In this week's healing invitation, I want to offer you a tool that has been crucial in my own healing after I have left abusive relationships. If you are recovering from an abusive relationship, I invite you to start writing a nick list. This is a tool recommended by Dr. Ramani Durbasula. In the ick list, you basically write down all the horrible things the abuser has ever done. Protect it if needed. I have mine as notes on my iPhone that are password protected. Keep that list close to you. And if you start doubting yourself, that is a great moment to open that list and start reading. The longer you can make the list, the better. The goal is that you will be reminded of why you are taking steps to set boundaries and recover by the time you get to the last item on that list. You can write a list for all the abusers in your life. You can write one for each of these people. I remember how hard it was to start some of my ick lists and I kept putting off writing some of them. I remember one particular list that I kept putting off and the way I got around that was I picked five minutes and I said, okay, I'm just going to write for five minutes. And actually 20 minutes later, I was still going. You can't even start with writing the top three awful things they have ever done and take it from there. Please let me know how this week's healing invitation goes if you choose to accept it. 
Before we wrap up this episode, all music and production is courtesy of yours truly. Also, I want to share a few ways you can support this podcast. You can subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the platform you are using to listen. Share this episode with anyone you think can benefit from this content. Follow Hello Trauma Brain on Instagram. Subscribe to the Hello Trauma Brain YouTube channel and hit the notification bell to be the first to know when I post a new episode. And you can make a donation by getting me a coffee through the official bio site. No worries, all links will be provided in the show notes. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you found this episode helpful. I wish you the best as you begin your eclipses and or continue your healing journeys. It is time for our farewell affirmations. You are welcome to repeat after me. I am enough. I am lovable. And I deserve to heal. I wish you a gentle week and thank you for listening.